because I've been recording these talks and they're actually now online. So you can go to Vipassana Santa Cruz or Vipassana SC uh, on any flyer. There's a web, there's the website and then Dharma Talks and then Buddhism and Recovery. Well, actually, you have to navigate through, find my name and then under my name, Buddhism and Recovery, all the talks that I've done here for this group and other talks that I've given are on that. And there's other people that have been giving talks that are on that site as well. So it can be helpful. So I'm going to read this poem again. This is a poem by Kabir. Kabir is a 13th century poet, mystic, Sufi mystic. And uh, Sufism and uh, Buddhism, they have a similar feel especially in the awareness and the mind quality. So it goes, O mind, you carry on your back. Your actions are like a heavy sack. No wonder that your shoulders ache. Another strains enough to break your neck. So drop that stupid load. This is the last stop on the road where you can... Find rest. Stay. Be love's guest. And I think that this fits this group of steps, seventh, eighth, and ninth step, because we're carrying these boulders of our past actions around with us in our minds, in our hearts, all the time. And when you sit in meditation um, or even just try to go to sleep at night, they come up. And you see someone or... I mean, I, I, I drank, did drugs, got locked up, uh, got clean, all in this town, you know. Um, and so it used to be, for the first few years, I would walk down a certain street and all these memories would come flooding, you know positive, mostly negative, you know. Uh, And so it's just like that, right? Oh, this mind you carry on your back. Your actions are like a heavy sack. Everything. It's like we just, if we don't deal with it and we don't allow, allow our, you know, past actions or allow, just allow whatever the current experience is. If we don't actually experience the current experience, it doesn't go anywhere. It just gets locked in, right? I've talked about that a little bit from like the way we lock in anger or resentment, anger turns into resentment. The way uh, ice hardens, you know, water hardens to ice. And so what we need to do is do the opposite, right? So we're carrying around this resentment, you know, that is really just a natural emotion of anger. And anger calms and anger goes, just like the sounds came and went, talking, you know, a bell, a beep, you know, a thought. This comes and goes. But if we lock onto it and we hold it, or we, or in this poem, we throw it in our knapsack, which we do. You know, I, when I was eight years old, I was abandoned. When I was, you know, this, I was that. This happened to me and that happened to me. And we, you know, and then the, it starts to hurt, you know. This is talked about in psychology a ton, right? This is a very common psychological concept uh, of carrying our past actions around with us. And if you're, you know, 
than using or drinking or doing drugs or, you know, eating obsessively or, you know, uh, obsessing on people and what they're doing in their lives for so long, then it's in some way, in some ways it's become a way of avoiding all that stuff. So seven, eight, and nine are about get right with it, look at it, you know, just like with four and five, four, five, and six are about look at your own stuff, right? And then, uh, and, and, you know, where you've been hurt or whatever, and then, and where you've hurt. And then looking seven, eight, nine is about, you know, how do we get right with the world? How do we walk with our head held high? How do we have self-esteem and pride that are not false? You know? So that's what I like about this. So drop that stupid load, right? This is the last stop on the road where you can find rest. Stay and be love's guest. Love being love yourself. Just the 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 concept of love, not not um, I love you. More like just like there is love, self love, our love, the love, you know. To Kabir, thirteenth century, he had some shit figured out, maybe. <laughs> So I'm going to back up just a little bit what we've themes we've covered in the last you know six weeks seven weeks. So we've looked at desire and craving. We spent the first you know few weeks really looking at that from the Buddhist perspective. Desire and craving around addiction and freedom from verifiable faith and taking refuge. We've looked at uh, not faith in something that we uh, can't see and don't believe. Um, but faith in something that is that we can see and we can believe that is verifiable. You know, um, these are all the past talks, so you can go into them on yourself, on your own. We've looked at the mind's tendency toward greed, hatred, and delusion, or ignorance, greed, hatred, or ignorance. Right? And we've looked at our own habits of mind, skillful and unskillful. Our own habits, which cause our own suffering for our own not-self. So we've been examining the causes and conditions of our suffering and the freedom from that suffering. And this is what we're going to start moving into, right? The healing power of, uh, of Buddhism, of meditation, of the 12 steps. If they didn't heal our ails, our afflictions, right? then why would they still be around? You know? I mean, I don't know. I think they're, I mean, I think that's the why, that's why, you know? Especially the two, uh, uh, Buddhism, Buddhism doesn't go out and try to get recruits. You know? Buddhism, maybe a little bit now in the Tibetan tradition in here in the States, there's a little bit more. But Buddhism has never been that way. Right? Um, and neither has the 12 steps. People who need it, find it. You know? And, and maybe now it's a little different. Now, you know, now courts will send you to your first couple meetings or whatever. You know, get out of a DUI. That kind of thing. I used to teach DUI classes and I'd be like, you have to go to them because the court says, but... I don't really care if you go or not. <laughs> you know, I mean, 
I think it's a good idea, you know, check it out. And if you haven't, if you're in this room and you haven't gone to a 12-step meeting, I think it's a good idea, check it out. What do you got to lose? You know. So healing the wounds of the mind. This is kind of where we're at in our process of the steps. Seven, eight, and nine seem like they're so much about getting right with the world, but they're also so much about letting go, dropping that stupid load that you're carrying around. Because guilt and shame are not helpful. They're just not. You know, regret, denial, remorse. Not helpful. So I'm going to do a little bit of reading tonight because I've kind of prepared this talk. So I want to make sure I cover, because I'm covering steps 7, 8, and 9, and I'm covering a huge aspect of the precepts, a huge aspect of Buddhism. And then we're going to do a little bit of a, uh, depending on our time, we're going to do maybe a something, a little dyad with you all, and we're definitely going to do a guided meditation in the end. <clears throat> so the healing power of the precepts, right? This is kind of my focus. So the Buddha was like a doctor, right? Treating our spiritual ills of the human race. The path of practice that he taught was like a therapy for suffering. For suffering hearts and minds. And in Buddhism, uh, heart and mind are the same, right? Heart, mind, there is no uh, separation between heart, mind. Um, it's not like the functional beating heart and it's not the brain. It's, uh, uh, it's something in between maybe. But that's the concept. If it's, if, uh, mind is not found anywhere in the physical body. right? And heart you know, is not found anywhere in the physical body. So it's got to be something else. It's real, right? We all can feel it. We know it. We know it to be true. Right? But that's the idea around uh, in Buddhism. They call it, they call it heart mind. Yeah. Uh, citta is what it's actually called in Pali. This ancient language that matters, but maybe not so much here. So, the, so this was a course of therapy. The Buddha, the Buddha, in some ways, was the first psychiatrist. I like to think about him. The first psychiatrist. Healing the wounds of our psyches. The wounds of our minds. And this way of understanding the Buddha goes all the way back to the earliest teachings. To the time of the Buddha, 2,550 years ago. And is still very current today. Right? As we we're looking into the precepts. So the the Buddha's path consisted of mindfulness, which is we've been which we've been doing. I've been giving instruction, concentration practice, um, which I've been doing a little bit of, but you really need more time to get into that. Um, insight practices, but also virtue, virtue or uh, moral. Uh, actually, I actually I'd like to call it uh, ethical behavior, living in a way that is ethical was actually some of the first teachings that the Buddha gave. It was like, yeah, yeah, you'll learn to meditate, you'll be liberated, but first act right in the world, right? Stop causing suffering for yourself. Stop hurting people. 
If you can do that, then maybe you'll be able to meditate. But until you, actually until you do that, you're going to fucking suffer. It's going to hurt to meditate. It's painful. Part of the reason why it was painful when I began, because I wasn't uh, living in an ethical or virtuous way at all, you know. So the tendency in the West is to dismiss the five precepts as Sunday school rules, right? Uh, bound to old cultural norms that no longer apply in the modern society. But I think that this misses the role uh, that the Buddha intended. Right? That they are part of a course of therapy for wounded minds. In particular, they are aimed at curing two ailments right? that underlie uh, low self-esteem which is a huge issue in the West. And this is regret and denial. So some aspects of low self-esteem that the precepts really uh, uh, focus on are working with regret or remorse and denial. So regret, so when our actions don't measure up to our certain standards of, of behavior, right? we either regret the action Engage in one one of two kinds of denial, uh, either uh, denying that our actions did in fact happen. Right in uh, uh, in the recovery model, this is called simple denial. That, that never happened. You know, I never did that. I didn't rob that lady. I didn't steal from that store. I didn't lie to that person. I just didn't do it. Right, and so we just deny that which is true, that which did happen. Right, I'm sure. I'm not the only one in this room who's done that. Right? Simple denial. Denying the fact that it happened. So, and then also uh, denying uh, that the standards of measurement are really even valid. You know, like, yeah, maybe I did do that, but, you know, was it really that big of a deal? You know? Uh, so, this in, in uh, addiction recovery is called, uh, you know, rationalization or justification. Right, this is part of what keeps this denial process going. Oh, you know, yeah, I smoke heroin, but I don't smoke it that much. You know, rationalizing it. You know, I'm only chipping. I only do it once a week. You know, or whatever. You, you know, you can add in whatever the your particular uh, choice is, drug or behavior. So these reactions are like wounds in the mind, right? Regret is an open wound. When you're regretting something, it's like it's like you have an open wound that's not healing. It's tender to the touch, right? While denial is like a hardened, twisted scar tissue, right? Around a tender spot. These are like wounds in the mind, right? When the mind is wounded in these ways... Uh, it can't settle down comfortably in the present. Uh, for it finds itself, you know, resting on raw, exposed flesh. So this is like trying to calm the mind in a place, but there's no, but where it's resting, it's wounded. Right? This is what happens when most people are, are like, I'm so uncomfortable with silence. You know, we try to sit in silence and it's just like, you know, it's just, there's, it's just, ah. Uh, because what comes up is regret, remorse, you know, future, past. So 
So even when the mind is focused, right, in the present, it's tensed, right, until we can look at these things. It stays tense. It doesn't completely settle. This is why meditation in the beginning can be really difficult. You know, because when we really get quiet, and if we really can drop in, we see what comes up. You know, what comes up is what has to come up. I had a um, sponsor that once told me, "You could wait to do your fourth step. You really can. You can put it off. You know. So you, you have two choices, right? You can go in and find the wounds." And pull them out, or you can wait till they come to the surface. Uh, which one do you choose? Right. So this is kind of what happens when we're meditating. If we're not living in an ethical way, and we're not doing some of this, this kind of the inner work, um, that the wounds begin to come to the surface. You know. So only if the mind is free of wounds and scars can it be expected to settle down comfortably, right? And freely in the present. And uh, and also, you know, it begins to give rise to discernment, give rise to, you know, wise action, wise contemplation. But only if it's only if it's smooth, settled, healed. I'm sure all of you have probably had a a wound that maybe you kept picking at, or you know, and it just never really healed right. You know? Now there's maybe a, a kind of a big scar. I got a few of those. So this healing of the these wounds in the mind, you know, another way that it's described is splinters in the mind. So you think about you got a splinter in your hand. And it just stays there. If you don't pull it out, it just festers. Same thing with the mind. Same thing with our actions and our ways of living. You know, doing things that are hurting others and hurting ourselves. So this is kind of the main uh, uh, kind of aspect. And the uh, it's it said one of my teachers actually said that. Um, that he wished that he could just go, and I feel the same way, I wish that I could just go and pull the splinter of suffering out of each one of your minds. But I can't. And neither could the Buddha. And neither can any other being. And really, or any other power being, in this concept of, you know, God. That you can pray to God to have your splinter removed. But even in the 12 and 12, and even in the Bible, it won't be. You have to do work. You have to change. Even in the Bible, you know, there's Ten Commandments, you know, even in the, the and in the, the, um, the 12 and 12, you know, and in, 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 in the 12 steps. You have to, you have to live uh, in a good way, you know. Talks about it all the time, especially in 8 and 9 and 10, which we'll get into next week. So this is where the five precepts come in, right? They are designed to heal these wounds and scars, right? Uh, healthy self-esteem comes from living up to the set of standards that are that are practical, that are clear-cut, that are humane, and that are worthy of respect. And this is, you know, what the Buddha set out. That 
you know, there was this whole idea of in Buddhism that, you know, if you, you were a monk and you had 327 precepts, unless you were a female uh, nun, then you had three, did I say, no, 227, and if you were a, a female, you had 331. You had 331 because the women gave extra precepts to women. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't actually hierarchical kind of passed down from this, you know, sexist lineage, which the lineage is pretty sexist actually, but that happened later. The Buddha was uh, really like, it doesn't matter what, what body you're in, you know, the, the Buddha was pretty clear about that. It doesn't matter what body you're in. You can be free as long as you're in this body. But he get but so that's what monks had, you know, the tons, hundreds, right? And he gave lay people, people like you and me, householders, people who had jobs and are married and had, you know, families and whatnot, five precepts. And he said, if you can live by these five precepts alone, you will, you know, reduce your suffering in a dramatic way. He actually, I, I've read, he said, you can have freedom from suffering if you live. Just by these five precepts alone. So, uh, sila is the word. Ethical living. right? Sila. So the five precepts are pretty simple, right? Non-harming. As a protection from ourselves. Uh, taking refuge. Seeing clearly intention. Skillful action. Right? So that's practical. These standards uh, set by the precepts are simple. They're simple. They're not, I mean, you know, don't kill, don't steal, don't lie, don't have sex with somebody else's partner, and uh, don't take intoxicants that lead to mindfulness, I mean, lead to mindlessness, heedlessness, make you crazy. If you don't do that, you'll suffer less. Period. Kind of makes sense. I mean, it's kind of like simple, you know. Yet it seems so complicated and so difficult. You know, oh, I can't do that. So it's entirely possible to live in line with these standards, right? Not always easy or convenient, right? But always possible. The view of uh, wise action is one I prefer, right? I prefer wise to be wise with sexual energy, to be wise with intoxicants. In this particular room, you know, maybe we're talking about no intoxicants, you know, uh, based on, you know, experience. Right? Uh, I wasn't very good at being wise with any uh, drug or alcohol. I, I, there was no wisdom involved in it. It was, you know, gluttony. But for some, it could be, can I be wise with it? Can I not cause harm to myself or others? Whether that's sexual behavior or... That's why I said wise with sexual energy. Because it's not saying, you know, don't have sex to householders or be a sexual being. Deny your your sexuality. No, but it's saying don't cause harm with it. Don't lie. Don't manipulate. Same thing with with alcohol and drugs. Tough. But possible. Right? More suffering is caused 
by actually our sexuality and being in relationship than any other of these aspects. More suffering to ourselves is caused by this. True in my own life and in the people that I've worked with and talked to. So if we observe um, these precepts, then we are aligning ourselves with the truth of karma. And I'll talk a little bit more about karma. But uh, karma which teaches us that most that the most important powers uh, shaping our own experience in the world are our intentional thoughts, our words, and our deeds. And, and uh, in each moment we can choose our intentions, our thoughts, and our deeds. And then we either regret or deny our intentions, our thoughts, and our deeds if we do so unskillfully. It's most of the time what happens. So in the eighth step, uh, you know, we're looking at our behavior, right? In the eighth step, we're looking at our behavior in the ways in which, you know, we've not followed these five precepts. Right? That's the deal. If this is the first time you've ever heard these precepts, I'm sure you've heard varying degrees of them. Right? By the way, I want us to talk about precepts. It's not a commandment. It's not a have to. As a matter of fact, you can choose not to follow any of them. And you'll suffer. Right? You can choose to not do the 12 steps. And you'll suffer. You can choose to uh, uh, not live in a way that is, you know, going to be skillful and cause, you know, uh, goodness and happiness to arise in your life. This is true. You can choose that. You know, but the Buddha and I and uh, you know most people, even in twelve steps, you know, are, are urging you not to, are urging you to do something different. So these these precepts are you know a good outline for ways that we have caused harm. You know, where have we caused harm in actions, in words? Where have we stolen? Where have we been harmful with our sexual power or energy? Where had drugs caused harm? Right? We made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. So amends. Amends is like taking the splinter out. I mean, sometimes. You know. But it's really, it means looking to it, attending to the wound. That's what, that's what amends is to me. So from the Buddhist perspective, it's seeing clearly the ways that we have created negative karma or negative karmic momentum. And the idea of karma is um, that whatever we do in thought, word, or action uh, plays out in some way in our lives. And it's not what comes around goes around, right? Like one time I used to steal stereos for a living, right? Kind of, for drugs, really. But, so I would break into cars and steal stereos, and then, you know, I didn't stop doing that. I, I stopped doing that, and, you know, got clean and sober, and, you know, then I went on this road trip up to Portland to a, a convention or something like that, and I got my stereo stolen. And I was like, that's my karma. That's got to be my karma, you know. And in some ways, maybe, but in other ways, you know, who knows? It's really their karma. Because we're all going to be, uh, we all have to answer in some way to our 
Thoughts, deeds, and actions. Thoughts, words, and actions. Such as trying to sleep at night. You know, I've been locked up a few times and there was nothing more painful and more lonely than sitting in a jail cell at night and just replaying all the crap, you know? I never want to do that again. And I used to want to. I used to be like, I can't wait to get locked up again. You know, get my workout on, whatever, you know? So far from that now. Things have changed, you know? And one of, the, one of the ways that that actually changes is becoming willing to make right the wrong. So in Buddhism, this is the work of this life, right? This is, the work of this life is to create positive karmic momentum. That's what we were here for. And that's why we're here in the Buddhist kind of uh, understanding of things. Positive karmic momentum. This is also the work of the eighth and ninth step, right? Not to be burdened by our past actions, uh, but to have a shift in our life towards the good. Towards the good that's in all of us, even if it feels buried. But of course, back to, you know, desire and craving, we first had to stop, you know, doing drugs and drinking or participating in the behavior so that we could see clearly. And then begin to attend to some of the wounds, you know. There's layers of wounds, right? So there's this story. There's this story um, of. It's actually a story that in a Buddhist story that helped me see that I uh, could heal. It's a story of uh, a, a character called uh, Angulimala. So Angulimala was um, you know raised he was actually I think he was orphaned or he was sent away as a, as a child to live in kind of a monastery this is in, in India prior to around the time of the Buddha uh, actually it was around the time of the Buddha so but it, there was Hinduism and Buddhism in India at the time so he was given some teachings by a teacher who could see that he had potential to become an enlightened being you know this teacher not not the Buddha but gave him, in, in his own jealous way, gave him some wrong teachings. And he actually said, um, if you kill people before they uh, uh, do harm, you stop them from doing harm, you're cleansing them of their karmic momentum. And, and, and in turn, they are, they'll have a positive rebirth and you will move closer to enlightenment. This is what the teaching that Angulimala was given by his... By his uh, you know his teacher, so he's and he believed his teacher. He grew up in this kind of you know monastery, kind of orphanage, and um, and so he set out. And actually, I think his teacher, I know his teacher said, uh, if you get a thousand thumbs, you cut a thumb off of every person that you kill, and it's like it's like they're like merit badges. And if you get a thousand of them, you'll be enlightened. So, and Gulimala set out. Right? And he kind of didn't feel right about it, but he was, he was his teacher and he, he believed him. So he, and he started, he started killing people. Yeah? First bandits, you know, people that were robbing other people, you know, like 
bad people, criminals, you know, vigilante style, right? And then he started to kind of get, this is where Mara, right, the, the, the ego, the mind of uh, greed, hatred, and delusion comes into play and, and basically said, um, actually, if you can kill people before they even do any action that is negative, then they'll immediately be reborn and you'll be closer to your goal. So he started indiscriminately killing people, right? So there's some say there's some uh, uh, talk of the, the the lust, the craving, the desire, the greed, right? And so he continued and he continued and he continued. So he had he had like 999 thumbs, garland, a garland of thumb, of thumbs around his neck, and he was kind of like there's this like you know depiction of him like foaming at the mouth, like bulging eyes, just like so starving to get enlightened. And he still believed he was going to get enlightened. And he uh, set out and was walking through the forest and he saw the Buddha walking in a distance. And he was like, yeah, 1,000. And he started running towards the Buddha with it. You know, he was apparently really good with the sword or something. And he started running towards the Buddha and as fast as he ran, the Buddha was always the same distance away. Right? But the Buddha had magical powers. Right? He could teleport himself or something. I don't know exactly. But, um, so in the story, basically what happened is that eventually Angulimala collapses and says, Stop running! Right? And, uh, and the Buddha stops and turns to face him and says, When will you stop running, Angulimala? Like he's been running from, you know, his past, and he just started crying, and then he was able to see that this was the Buddha, that the, you know, you know, and 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 the Buddha gave him some teachings that were the teachings that I've been given you about precepts and about non-killing and about actually the, whatever he learned before was false view, wrong view, right? And Angulimala in that moment became a monk, uh, gave up all his past kind of, you know. Uh, uh, all of his past actions, you know, and he took simple robes and shaved his head and he walked from village to village. And what happened as he started walking from village to village is people recognized him and they would stone him and they would shun him and they wouldn't feed him. And so he was like, basically he was living his karma, right? He was changing his karmic momentum, um, and he, there was times where he was, you know, really tried. He was really, he uh, uh, was, was almost killed once by, uh, uh, they weren't bandits, but they were like people that were taking revenge on their father who had been killed, something like that. And so he continued and he continued and he continued. And the Buddha, and he would, t- you know, come to the Buddha and he would say like, this is, you know, this is hard. And the Buddha would say, yeah, and this is your karma, you know. So not that we have to burden it, but to face up, right? To take responsibility, not to be to blame, because he wasn't to blame, and Gulimala wasn't to blame. But he did have to take responsibility, and that's what this eighth and ninth step is about, and that's what the precepts are about. If you want to live free, you got to get free, you know, or you got to realize that you're already free. Really, is another way to look at it. So one of the things that began to happen with Angulimala 
And then Gulimala began to become to get forgiven. Actually, there were some there were you know wives and there were daughters and there were some sons that would come and they would you know they would see that he was a monk now and that he was you know really on this path and they would actually fall to his their his knees and they would forgive him. And so in that way he began to change his karmic momentum. There's more to the story, but we won't get into it. But basically it's about kind of redemption. I just always love that story. Mainly because um, I've harmed people. You know? I've caused harm to myself and others. Lied, stolen, cheated, done drugs, done horrible things. You know? Not killed anyone, but at least not that I know of. But, um, this story, when I first heard this story, it, it, it let me know that, you know, it's like I too could have some healing from this. I too can change my karmic momentum based on my actions now, based on what I'm doing in my life. So, so that's why I like it. That's why I told it. But we have to at first begin to do that work within ourselves, right? So we can have some freedom. We can look, tend to the wounds. So I'm going to open up for some questions and then we're going to do uh, a practice of forgiveness. Because we've got to begin to forgive ourselves. It's the only way out. Over the last uh, few weeks, I've, you know, I've given you guys some of the, some work to do. And, you know, I, I, ha- I handed out a, a list, some handouts, and then now, you know, it's been, we've been like half the size. <laughs> not, I'm not really saying that, but, it, you know, it could be. You know. It's tough. But we also have to look and take responsibility for our actions before we can, so we can know what we're actually asking for forgiveness for. We can know what we're forgiving ourselves for. Just like in the, you know, in the in the fourth step, we have to know how other people have harmed us, so we can forgive them too. So I'm going to open up for some questions, just questions about what I've talked about, and thanks for being so patient and letting me just kind of ramble on about some stuff. But and then we'll do a practice, please. Um. Earlier, um, you mentioned um, something, I don't know your exact words, but you said something like um, like guilt and shame and regret and whatnot, those mm-hmm. emotions aren't useful. Helpful. Aren't helpful. But aren't they, like, I was thinking, like, to some degree, like, momentarily, maybe they can be useful as sort of like a cue or a motivator to get us to see sure. that we need to, that we, the work that we do need to do, kind of. Um, but clinging to it and <clears throat> right. settling in it is not helpful. Yeah, exactly. So. Right. Holding on to it is not helpful. Well, I think maybe that's what I was saying. Or if I didn't, that's what I should have said. That's what I meant to say. Yeah. But we can't help that it happens. Okay. Except for to live How in a way of non-harming. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But when we have, you know, regret. Okay, well, why do we have regret? You know, so it can be a cue, but if it's a repeated pattern, right, or we're just holding on to it because we want to 
we want to harm ourselves. You know, we want to continue to harm ourselves. I feel so bad for what I've done. I feel so guilty. I've been shamed so much about all the things that I've done that I feel like I need to kind of whip myself all the time, mentally. Translated to, I'm a piece of shit. In every thought, word, and action. I thought that way. Actually, the, the the words that come into my mind is, I'm a bastard, not worthy of any love. Yeah, that, that, that was a regret, remorse, shame, guilt kind of wheel that we, we all hold on to it. But yeah, but clearly, you, if you can see it and you have mindfulness and awareness, then you can begin to move through it, right? Name it and then begin to kind of do the work. Yeah, thanks for asking that. Other questions about what I talked about tonight, things you didn't understand, it's fine. You think anything I was saying was didn't make any sense? Please. I have just like a general question. Okay. Um, I would just like to learn more about Buddhism, and yeah. I'm wondering if there's like one particular book that you could recommend. Uh, it's called Buddhism: A Concise Introduction by some people. Okay. I can't remember. There's two authors. Buddhism, A Concise Introduction. It's a great book. Okay. Give you everything you need to know about Buddhism. Well, not really. But it'll give you a good introduction. <laughs> Concisely. I can't... Novak and... I can't, there's two authors. One's Novak. I can't remember the other one. But you can just, you know, Google it or Amazon it or whatever and it'll come up. Buddhism, A Concise Introduction. Yeah, it's a pretty cheap book too, like maybe fifteen bucks. Yeah, I've just been thinking about um, where relapse comes into play with all of this. Just because you know, as soon as we start looking at what's real and and being truthful about ourselves and our hurts and our wounds, you know, that's that's just, you know, kind of the perfect opportunity to get into a place where going back to that which um, is maybe comforting or, or sure. convenient or another way of, you know, kind of sort of, um, if we think we're really crummy and this stuff's coming up, mm-hmm. might as well just um, kind of get it over with. And, and the whole relapse seems to be, I don't know exactly how, but it just seems like it, it fits in so somewhere, mm-hmm. you know. And, um, it's the tendencies of the mind. You know, it's the tendencies of our habitual patterns of causing and continuing to cause suffering that when we start to look at, oh, what's the root? Well, the root is this hurt, this mistreatment, this, you know, which is already there, not going to go anywhere. And you, and you But the tendency is to, oh, i got to numb this out, you know, right? That's what you're kind of saying. Yeah. 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 And 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 maybe in addition to the fear that comes up about maybe change in general, the fear that comes up about just even looking at this stuff that is so painful. So yeah. So maybe to to numb it out, go somewhere else. Yeah. You know, we we got there for a reason because it worked at some point. At some point. So. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, did it really work? You know, I mean, that's the question, right? You know. Right, that's probably the, the perception again. Yeah. You know, the denial again, the, right. the way that, you know, one just right. perceives right. the story. Yeah. yeah. So, it's a tough question. Relapse is a really tough issue. And the reality, uh, for me, from this Buddhist perspective, um, is that to really take time, right? Try to live in a way. Don't, I mean, you know, don't go into, you know, the deepest wounded place. You know, we're going to do this exercise in a minute about forgiveness. Don't try to forgive the harshest thing you've ever done or the hardest person to forgive. Like, don't do it, you know? So protect yourself, right? By, by touching pain and then pulling away. Touching pain. Like I think of, like so let's say sometimes my knee, this is a good example, my knee will be throbbing in complete, utter agony and I just got to move it, I got to move it. And so it will make me want to stop meditating, right? And so the way that we can practice this is to bring your attention to the outside of the pain. Where, where do you start to feel the tenderness of the of pain? Whether it's physical or emotional. Right? But don't go right to the center. It's too overwhelming. Right? Um, and so that way it's like softening. It's like looking. It's like tending to the wound. First you clean the wound. Right? You put some antibiotics on it. You don't just you know, sew it up right away. You know, so it's kind of like that. It's exactly what metta is, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And forgiveness is like a precursor. Forgiveness, metta, compassion, it's all the same. Care about your own suffering. You don't have to heal it. It'll heal. Just care about it. You know. It's a great question. It's a really tough issue. Yeah. Um, and it's it's exactly the way you said it. It's exactly what happens. Is people sometimes they they get clean and sober, right? And 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 sometimes they gung ho, jump right in, you know, get tons of service. And I'm going to do this forever, and this is the way it's going to be. And then boom, thirty days later, you know, they have a complete memory recall. I actually had a client that at thirty or sixty days, she was maybe forty five. She had a complete memory recall of being molested, something she had been repressing. You know, being molested when she was like ten or nine or something, and uh, and it it threw her, you know, uh, and she actually didn't relapse. She actually, you know, she actually might have relapsed and then came back and then started going to therapy. And this is why therapy is helpful, right? Therapy, you know, to, uh, working the twelve steps. That's why they're in order, you know. Uh, that's why the idea is that we live now in this moment. Uh, in a in a good way, right? And that, and we start moving forward. That would be one one way to look at it. Yeah. Could you turn that fan off now? <laughs> Hi. Really quick, I was wondering what the word actually precept actually means. The actual word. Um, precept means like agreements. Yeah. The word precept means agreements. Yeah. So they're like you're making an agreement to yourself. So to take refuge in the precepts. Yeah, yeah. To take, if, okay, so I screwed and I did wrong today, but I can still take refuge in the fact that I am still yeah. trying to do these agreements. Yeah, every day. Every day. It's a, it's, it's yeah. like having that daily reprieve. Yeah, it has. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but taking refuge is like knowing there's always a safe place that you can always go back to. Even if you're out in the war zone, there's always a foxhole. I hear that term a lot. Just coming into Buddhism and meditating, I hear that taking refuge in the precepts. Refuge, yeah, yeah. It's a safe place, you know. And that the precepts are a refuge, yeah. They're a safe place. Right. That if we can live in in this moment, in as non-harming as possible, then, you know, then, then we're doing okay. Yeah. Please, could, I'm sorry, uh, Christy, could you now turn that light on? Are we okay with light? You guys are okay? We're going to be done in like 15 minutes. Okay, never mind. Forget it. Forget oh, okay. it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I'm not quite sure I understand how the 12-step model um, addresses that, that Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.